National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. The nation of Turkey has been center stage for a great many reasons the past few years. On a previous show, we had Ambassador Ross Wilson on the show. He had served as U.S. Ambassador to Turkey just as uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan was starting to come onto the scene as a political leader in Turkey and the greater Middle East region. President Erdogan is up for re-election this year, and his impact on Turkish politics and Turkish foreign policy is being felt daily. We're going to take a deep dive into Turkey today and cover a wide range of issues that matter significant to, significantly excuse me, to American national security. With us to discuss this topic is Professor Ryan Gingeris. Ryan Gingeris is a professor in the Department of National Security Affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School and is an expert in modern Eastern European and Middle East history. He is the author of six books, including most recently, The Last Days of the Ottoman Empire. His book, Sorrowful Shores, Violence, Ethnicity, and the End of the Ottoman Empire, received shortlist distinctions for the Rothschild Book Prize in Nationalism and Ethnic Studies and the British Kuwait Friendship Society Book Prize. He has published on a wide variety of topics related to history and politics in such publications as Foreign Affairs, The New York Times, Washington Post, International Journal of Middle East Studies, the Middle East Journal, Iranian Studies, Past and Present, and War on the Rocks. As a faculty member of the Naval Postgraduate School, he has participated and contributed to research and executive uh, education projects on behalf of the Department of State, Department of Energy, and, of course, the Department of Defense. In addition to speaking German, Spanish, and Turkish fluently, he also possesses working knowledge of Albanian, Macedonian, and Greek. Professor Ryan, <laughs> Ryan Gingeris, welcome to National Security This Week. Hey, thank you very much for your invitation for me to come on, John. I appreciate it. And I know it's early morning for you out there at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. What's the weather like today? I know that California's been under a little bit of rain lately. <laughs> uh, we're getting a little bit of a taste of what's, uh, what's coming ahead for us. Uh, it's, it's raining now. Uh, it's going to break, but then we're going to get the big one tomorrow and then through the weekend. So... You know, it, it, it's the it's the nature of things these days. Indeed, California. Uh, so I want to begin by highlighting for our listeners uh, that the answers you give us today the, to the topics we're discussing, uh, these are your personal views. You're not representing those of the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School, the U.S. Navy, or the Department of Defense, or any department of the U.S. government. This is purely uh, your perspective. Uh, th that said, the first thing that I want to ask you is, how the heck did you learn so many languages? That's an impressive list. Uh, thanks. You know, um, I, I have to say that only in English could I could probably explain how to make a souffle with any kind of accuracy. <laughs> uh, you know, the other ones, I, I the, the short answer to your question is I, I wasn't raised with any of these languages. They all came about through school in one capacity or another. Um, you know, I, when uh, I came of an age where I thought I wanted to do history as a profession. It was made really clear to me by mentors, professors, that if you loved the place and you wanted to study it, you had to learn the language. Like there was no other way to go around it. 
But, you know, the the reasons why I learned the language was not simply to be able to, you know, order a cup of coffee or what have you, but more that you had to be able to read it. And you had to be able to read it if you were going to go through archives, if you're going to really dig into history from the perspective of those who lived it. And so um, the short answer is that, you know, Spanish, uh, I learned actually more as a result of being married uh, to a woman from Mexico. Uh, the Turkish I learned, you know, and, and learned to speak fluently by, by virtue of living there for extended periods of time. Same with German. Um, but the others, I, you know, I, I, I could make myself understood. I can't say that I'm, I have a, an exceptionally strong, you know, command of speech anymore, but if I, if I have to read something and I have to go through it fast, I could do it, you know, with, you know, in those other languages as well. It's an impressive skill, uh, being able to speak that many languages, certainly in uh, in academia, but uh, also in, in careers like in the intelligence community or in the State Department as a diplomat. So uh, I envy you in many ways, your ability to communicate with so many other people. Uh, you mentioned Turkey. Uh, what was it about Turkey that, uh, that made you want to study that nation as sort of a focus area? Yeah, you know, and again, I I have no personal roots in in Turkey or within the wider region. Um, it was a place that was first introduced to me via books, and um, books that, you know, in some ways, Turkey at first was a kind of, you know, marginal player. You know, I uh, when I was in high school, um, I was you know sort of taken by you know news events. Um, you know, in in the early 1990s, in particular, you know things like, uh, for example, the civil war in Yugoslavia, and you know events there made me want to read about um, Eastern Europe. It made me want to read about the Balkans, and you know through you know just my really childlike interest in history, I came more aware of of Turkey, Turkey's impact upon you know its wider environment. And the long story short is, you know, as I had to try to make a decision what I was going to do with my life, as I guess, you know, people do when they're in their late teens, early 20s, you know, one of the ways I wanted to help try to make the best of that decision was to go and, and travel. And um, in uh, the early 2000s, uh, in 2001, I, I traveled to Turkey. I spent a month there and I just fell in love with it. And, you know, honestly, anybody who has gone to Turkey, I think, share many of the same impressions that, you know, people are incredibly warm. Um, it's uh, a, a really quite a, a a striking society in so many different ways. It's beautiful. Food's wonderful. Music's great. Um, and there's a real rich richness to, you know, the, the culture that's, you know, you can find in major cities and in small towns. And so um, it was on the basis of that that I just sort of went for broke and decided to make um, Turkey the thing that I wanted to really get to know and study it and build a career off of. And and that's what led me here. So Turkey sits at that really unique uh, crossroads between Europe and the Middle East. And uh, I mean, it's pretty obvious that there's a not really a clash, but maybe a uh, a mixing of cultures uh, in Turkey because of its geostrategic location. But Turkey is also a, a very, very important NATO ally. 
uh, member of the NATO alliance be- because of its geostrategic location. Uh, and geography matters in national security affairs. Uh, how important is Turkey as a NATO alliance member? I think um, for a very long time, it, it was assumed that Turkey uh, as a state would be the among the essential uh, actors within NATO, um, the essential actor insofar as it um, helps maintain, um, I'd say, a, a relatively uh, effective cordon uh, between uh, the Mediterranean and the wider wider former Soviet Union, and it's uh, it's it's real importance is based primarily on the fact that it not only shares the um, the longest borders or sort of maritime borders in the Black Sea and in the Mediterranean, but that it has um, territorial sovereignty over the Turkish Straits, the so-called Bosphorus and Dardanelles. And it's through this, um, you know, through this waterway that uh, you can, it's the only through this waterway that you can reach the Black Sea uh, via the Aegean or vice versa. So, um, you know, for the perspective of, of Russia, the Soviet Union, uh, you know, being able to uh, influence affairs beyond the Black Sea um, demands either that you take Turkey on or that you somehow incorporate it. But uh, in 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 either, you know, forcefully or not so forcefully. So, you know, therefore, Turkey, you know, very early on in the development of the NATO alliance was courted as a member. And it's actually uh, at the time between in the early 1950s, Turkey saw very much saw uh, the Soviet Union as a threat, a threat to its sovereignty, a threat set to a threat to its um, territory. And so um, in 1951, it it joined NATO. And so since then, uh, Turkey has remained a a really important feature within the NATO alliance because it serves such a vital role within this collective defense alliance. And there are, are, uh, you know, U.S. air base there at Incirlik. Uh, pretty critical to operations in uh, in the Middle East, across the Middle East, especially things that we've been doing in Iraq and Syria over the I, last 20-some years. If I could correct you, yeah. I mean, it's actually not a U.S. air base. Well, it's right, a NATO right. base. Yeah, NATO base, uh, but U.S. Yeah, aircraft. I mean, there. but th- this is actually a really important point, though. I mean, I think that, you know, certainly in Turkey, there is the impression that the United States has bases in in um, in Turkey. And that's that's really not true. These are These are joint bases. In which you know Turkey ultimately has sovereign control over these um, o- over these territories. If Turkey doesn't want them, they could get he they could get rid of them. But in addition to Injilik, there's a, a base in Izmir. There's you know a, a couple of other bases in the interior um, that have all formed a part of the fabric of you know Turkey's participation within within NATO. Yeah. So for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Ryan Gingeris, and we're discussing the complicated relationship between Greece and Turkey. Uh, we're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Professor, let's get into one of the most concerning issues for Turkey, and that would be the contentious relationship uh, between Turkey and Greece, uh, uh, which is another NATO member. Uh, can you explain the historical friction that exists, I mean, even today, <laughs> between those two nations, and maybe drill down a bit to describe what Turkey is doing to provoke Greece on a wide range of issues, and maybe vice versa as well? 
Uh, is it just Erdogan that's sort of pushing this, or is there something inherent about that relationship between Greece and Turkey that goes back uh, that that you know, causes this friction? Uh, I, I've lost your uh, audio there, uh, Ryan. Well, in case anybody just stepped out, you know, or has to step out, let me just say it first up front. It, it is complicated. <laughs> um, but, you know, in some ways, it is the result of historic frictions, frictions that, you know, depending on where you want to start, the timeline goes back about a century, maybe goes back, you know, more, you know, maybe another century. But uh, it is more recently rooted in terms of the nature of the tensions in affairs since the end of the Cold War since the 1950s. Now, if you did go back, you know, one thing that I think is important to to recognize is that Greece is among the first states to um, uh, liberate itself from rule under the Ottoman Empire. Turkey is a state that identifies it, you know, itself uh, almost singularly with the legacies of the Ottoman Empire as a kind of carryover of it, right? Mm-hmm. So, in um, you know, for Greeks, you know, the that is key to their identity to the the fact that. Um, they are, you know, they represent a people that had, uh, struggled for, you know, their independence. They received it. But the fact of the matter is large numbers of Greek speaking Orthodox Christians are found in places, uh, beyond its borders, at least in historical terms. And this would include large portions of what is today the Republic of Turkey, not only places like Istanbul or Constantinople, but along the Aegean shores, along the north of the Black Sea. Um, all told, you know, if you're going to go back to, you know, as late as the early 1920s, you know, somewhere around 1.5 to 2 million Greeks live within this wider territory. And in the late 19-teens, early 1920s, Greece and what remained of the Ottoman Empire fought a war. They fought a war over the territorial sovereignty, principally uh, in over those lands where large numbers of Greeks lived. And uh, this, you know, remnant of the Ottoman Empire, which becomes the Republic of Turkey, wins this war. And this war, which, you know, is, goes by lots of different names in Turkey, it's called the Turkish War of Independence um, or the Liberation War. In um, Outside of it, it's often referred to as the Greco-Turkish War of 1919-1922. Uh, it's a relatively obscure conflict because it comes right on the heels of World War I. Mm-hmm. But this is the seminal moment in a lot of ways in the making of Turkey and in the making of Greece. And it's a very bitter moment for both, right? Both lose a lot. There is a, an immense amount of animosity. But most importantly, it's at this moment that um, virtually all, not all, not 100%, but virtually all Greeks who lived in, within the borders of what, are in today, what is today Turkey are forcibly expelled, mm. right? They're forcibly expelled to Greece. Again, uh, a total, you know, totaling up, you know, a little bit over a million people, uh, go, you know, who are forced to, uh, to live in Greece, even though Greece technically is not their country. It's not the place that they grew up. It's not their homeland. It just is the place where, you know, the vast majority of now Greek Orthodox Christians are found in the world. Now, conversely, um, several hundred thousand Muslims who lived in Greece during this period of time were, ex- were expelled to Turkey. Now, this was, again, you know, received as a deeply embittering experience. So when Turks think about Greeks and Greeks think about Turks, their minds often go to this 
and kind of shared moment of bitterness and animosity. Now, the the truth is, though, that between the 20s to the 50s, ties do actually improve, right? In fact, they sign a treaty of friendship in the 1930s. And they not only sign this treaty of friendship, but they be, they join NATO together. And this is seen as a glue between them in that they both recognize a shared sense of insecurity when it comes to the Soviet Union. Uh, and needless to say, you know, both remain NATO members today. And this, this glue arguably is among the reasons why war has not ensued since the 1950s. Now, all these factors aside, you know, there were other factors in and beyond just issues of refugees and territory that be- continue to gum up the works in terms of relations between Turkey and Greece. Among them is the issue of Cyprus. You know, Cyprus is an island which is an independent republic. It's separate from Turkey and Greece, but they is an island that has large Greek and large Turkish populations. And so this has drawn both of these countries in. And as, you know, animosity built on the island or build, you know, continue to build up on the island after um, the 1950s, um, that situation nearly brought uh, Greece and Turkey to war on more than one occasion. So, you know, this, you know, kind of long lasting legacy, the issue of Cyprus, its, its sovereignty, uh, specifically the, the, the sovereignty of, of, of Turks on the island. Turks comprise about Oh, you know, around 15%, you know, give or take, uh, of, of the, of the population of the island, but, uh, are secured within the northern part of the island, um, as an unrecognized territory internationally. It's recognized as a republic only by the Republic of Turkey. Um, and this territory was secured through a Turkish invasion in 1974, uh, an invasion that is uh, under international inter- under international law illegal, but it is the thing that secured Turkish sovereignty in this portion of the island, which is what Turkey wanted, and that remains a really big sticking point, not just between Turkey and the Republic of Cyprus, Cyprus, but between Turkey and Greece. Now, more recently, and you know, forgive me for going on so long, but like I said, it's really quite complicated. Um, they're the issue of islands. There are hundreds of islands in the Aegean and Mediterranean. Um, most of these islands belong territorially to Greece. And the nature of these islands along the shores of the Aegean and the Mediterranean actually, um, due to their sovereign rights over the, mar- the maritime uh, territory that surrounds them, over the waters that surround these islands, make it so that in many places, Turkey does not have access to the sea or has a very narrow access to the sea. And fundamentally, you know, more than ever, Turkey has rejected this very principle. It rejected the very the idea that somehow Greek sovereign claims to waters surrounding its small islands would trump Turkey's own very large coastline that, again, you know, sort of uh, envelops the Mediterranean, envelops the Aegean, um, that somehow Greece has a kind of veto over its maritime sovereignty. Now, in the end, the, the problem with that is, is that is international law mm-hmm. and and the issue of treaties. These are Greece's islands. Greece has every right to have a maritime, a, a claim to the waters surrounding these islands. Turkey more and more has tried to come up with 
rather creative ways, let's just say, to try to negate the, that sovereignty in some way, shape or form. And so what we find ourselves now in 2023, more than anything, is two countries that are at loggerheads over, you know, a series of islands, most of which are re- either uninhabited or un- essentially simply vacation spots, right? I mean, they're most famous for the fact that people from all over the world go there for a vacation in the sun. But they represent in the minds of lots of Turks today an existential threat because it restricts Turkey's, Turkey, Turkey's access to the sea and more and more Turkey's access to mineral rights that lie underneath the sea. And so that adds yet a new dynamic that raises tensions and raises the stakes in this really, again, quite complex um, relationship. I would say that's probably one of the best uh, uh, discussions I have ever heard of the complexity of uh, conflict between Turkey and Greece. Uh, thank you very much for that. That, that was that was <laughs> eye opening, <laughs> very eye opening. So we At also seven twenty in the morning. No yeah, less. that's right. That's right. <laughs> so President Erdogan had a bit of a run in with uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin over Russia's involvement in Syria and also Russia's uh, brokering a peace deal between Azerbaijan and Armenia when there was a conflict not too long ago. Uh, Erdogan has also inserted himself, uh, inserted Turkey, really, into Libya and even into the broader Middle East as a nation capable of influencing events. Uh, I'd like to touch on a few of these topics, but I'd like to start with uh, with Turkey's role in, in trying to broker a grain export deal uh, during this conflict that's been happening, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Turkey worked pretty pretty aggressively to try and make sure that uh, Ukrainian grain could get out of Ukrainian ports in the Black Sea and uh, out to the world. Uh, some of the countries uh, in the Middle East uh, re- rely very heavily on those grains from from Ukraine. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that first, and then we'll get into some of these other topics and uh, uh, maybe two or three minutes on on each of these as we go go through them? Sure, I'll I'll do my best. So, you know, I think the first thing to bear in mind is that Recep Tayyip Erdogan is has has made it his hallmark more and more. Uh, that he should be president of Turkey. He should have a lasting legacy in Turkey because he is a senior statesman and someone who has been known for big moves, big moves that have improved Turkey standing uh, and increased its influence in the world at large. And among the things that he has done is cultivate a relationship with Vladimir Putin. And this goes back uh, several years to about 2015, in which um, Turkey, uh, at the point of crisis, uh, as a result of the sh- of a shootdown of a Russian fighter plane over Syria, uh, Turkey uh, was nearly brought to a, a a crisis of conflict with Russia um, over their sort of their their conflicting issue- issues in Syria. Um, uh, Erdogan managed to um, smooth over um, this relationship. He actually, or this crisis, he actually apologized for the shootdown, even though um, supposedly the the plane had crossed into um, Turkish airspace. But since then, more importantly, um, the two leaders have grown to talk quite a bit. In fact, they have regular phone conversations, um, usually about once a month. Um, they've coordinated, as you point out, on a number of different regional issues, Azerbaijan and Armenia, Libya, Syria, and so forth. And in the beginnings of the war in Ukraine, in a lot of ways, placed that 
relationship in jeopardy because at the same time, Turkey did have going into the crisis relatively good relations with Kiev. And, you know, among the reasons why is that Turkey um, is indeed an important juncture in the um, exporting of various goods coming out of Ukraine. Among them is grain, um, as well as other commodities. But also there's things such as um, uh, you know, it sounds may sound somewhat random. Um, aviation uh, technology, um, the production of engines, for example, is uh, is something that Ukraine is really well known for. And Turkey had been looking to eye a deal uh, with Ukraine over joint production of, uh, of of engines. So Turkey, so Turkey, most notably Erdogan, had a vested stake um, in maintaining a good relationship with both of these countries. Yet they go to war. And, you know, rather, you know, surprisingly, um, Erdogan didn't manage to split the difference between both Ukraine and Russia. And I think, you know, quite probably, you know, Russia um, agreed to make this deal knowing that Turkey would uh, not only be more or less a kind of honest broker between the two of them, but perhaps more so would turn a blind eye to the shipment of contraband grain as well. That is grain that Russia took from um, Ukrainian supplies, put it on Russian ships and sent it through the, um, through the Straits into the Aegean. Um, and it's very clear that Turkey has not made any kind of effort to stop that kind of contraband shipment. So in a lot of ways, it's very typical of the kind of relationship that Turkey has come to um, cultivate with Russia. On the one hand, it, it does act as a kind of mediator uh, between Russia and the outside world, but it's one that Russia does actually profit from, profit from in terms of being able to do, let's just say, uh, not so nice things or things that are, 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 uh, are not necessarily in the interest of, of the United States or the Western alliance. And perhaps most importantly, Turkey profits as well. And so this is kind of where the the deal is. It's, you know, not much has changed. And, you know, unless, you know, Russia does something really, really bad, but even then it's somewhat hard to say, uh, I think this current dynamic will continue. Yeah, that, that, that's good insight. Uh, Professor Gingeris, we're going to take just a short break uh, to recognize our, our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit. Uh, we'll be right back to continue our discussion. Great. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.com. With, uh, we're back with National Security This Week, and our guest is uh, Professor Ryan Gingeris from the uh, Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, and we're talking about Turkey. Uh, Professor Gingeris, how, how impactful was it uh, on, on President Erdogan to have so little influence over the settlement of the Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict? Uh, sort of, it seemed like Putin sort of swept in there and, uh, and really kind of helped dictate the terms of that, that peace agreement. What 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 impact do you think it had on Erdogan's approach to other Turkish foreign policy initiatives? I I think one thing has to, you have to consider is that as obscure as this conflict is um, for many people out there, and for perhaps good reason, um, <laughs> for Turkey, um, Azerbaijan is not simply a neighbor. Um, 
Azerbaijan is a country whose language um, is very, very similar to the Turkish that's spoken in Turkey. It's not 100% intelligible. It's close, though. Uh, it's also a country that um, has deep organic ties um, to the Turkish economy. Um, its leadership uh, is very close to Erdogan, uh, um, that, you know, Haider Aliyah, uh, not um that the the president of Azerbaijan shares very very warm times with Erdogan himself uh so you know this issue within the the sphere of let's say turkish media is is treated almost like the ways in which americans treat the relationship with great britain it's a special relationship mm, yep. um you know the the expression that's used in turkey is that it's one nation but two flags so you know there <laughs> you know turks and azeris are one you know, kind of come from the same stock, but they live in two different countries. And, you know, the fact is, you know, when the crisis began, um, Turkey actually played an outsized role in helping Azerbaijan secure its gains over Armenia, right? It played a particularly important role in uh, providing Azerbaijan uh, uh, with drones, drones that were used to great effect against uh, Armenian armor, uh, and artillery. Um, but they did more importantly, perhaps they had helped retrain the, um, Azerbaijani army over the course of recent years. So Azerbaijan is deeply indebted to, um, to, to Turkey. You know, the fact is, you know, in the early stages of that conflict, a lot of people were asking the opposite question, John, where is Russia? This is Russia's backyard. Russia yeah. has had troops, um, in the region, you know, since the time of the, uh, first civil war between Azerbaijan and Armenia going back um, to the latter days of the Soviet Union, early days of the post-Soviet era. Perhaps even more importantly, Armenia has... And, and Armenia a, is part of the CSTO that uh, Russia sort of leads. That's exactly the point I was going to make. Armenia has a defensive alliance with Armenia. Uh, Armenia has a defensive alliance with Russia. So, I mean, this was really striking. And again, people were saying, well, is this going to create some sort of wider conflict, you know, one that could bring Turkey in? Uh, as well as Russia and lead to a much generalized war. And I think the best way to think about uh, the Caucasus, which I, I must say uh, is, you know, kind of gives uh, the, the state of affairs between Turkey and, Gre Turkey and Greece a, a run for its money in terms of complexity. Um, you know, I think the best way to think about it is that both Russia and Turkey possess some leverage within the region, but they don't possess absolute leverage within the region. And what seems to have taken place is something of a, of a tango, or maybe, you know, I don't know what maybe the best analogy is tango kabuki dance, <laughs> but one or the other in the sense that both sides understand that they have interests. Both sides don't want to create a situation where they're both at war with one another, neither Turkey or, or, or Russia would benefit from a, a conflict with one another. They realize that the greater relationship is of supreme value to both. So um, Turkey, more than anything, has allowed Russia to continue to play this role and vice versa. Russia has continued to allow Turkey to play an interventionist role into this conflict. You know, the question that remains is, you know, does either Turkey or Russia have a threshold when it comes to relinquishing a certain amount of influence? And Russia, perhaps at this point, is in worse 
you know, in a, in a worse situation due to the war in Ukraine, mm-hmm. um, does it have the bandwidth to actually be able to really push back sufficiently and gently enough in the caucuses um, that it, um, you know, it would block Turkey from having too much influence? Um, that remains to be seen. And I think that, you know, arguably the two sides are still sort of figuring out for, you know, between the two of them, what is appropriate enough in terms of, you know, a kind of uh, a certain amount of leverage, appropriate amount of leverage, um, appropriate amount of gain vis-a-vis their kind of respective allies or um, surrogates in the caucuses. And I, and I know there have been some concern that... Uh... Azerbaijan may take advantage of Russia's investment into Ukraine, uh, lack of attention to the situation in Armenia, uh, to relaunch a new offensive. I don't know if that'll happen. We'll have to see. Uh, Pressing on with with other topics, uh, uh, Turkey involving itself in uh, Libya. Uh, What role does Turkey play in the Libya conflict and why? Why why did Erdogan Erdogan feel it was necessary to invest Turkey uh, Turkish interests all the way a- across the Mediterranean into Libya. Turkey plays an important role <laughs> in so far as, uh, you know, Turkey um, came into the conflict at a stage in which uh, after the fall of Muammar Gaddafi, one particular faction, uh, a faction um, that represented a significant portion of the former Libyan army had taken over much of the country and taken over the country uh, at the expense of a representative body that the UN had recognized as the successor government to Muammar Gaddafi. Now, among the things that made Turkey want to intervene was that a significant component of this government is allied with a group known as the Muslim Brotherhood or the Muslim Brothers, which is a transnational organization. It's an Islamist organization. It's an organization that Turkey has grown rather close to, or at least grew rather, um, uh, developed rather close relations with um, during the late 2000s, early 2010s. And so, you know, partly out of personal sympathy, but partially out of, a, as a, out of an effort to try to capitalize on a, a potential reversal in this conflict. You know, Turkey sent a small expeditionary force um as well as military um, supplies to the Tripoli government. Again, this is the, you know, the, the, the other side in the civil war in which they were able to reverse the tide. Now, where we really see the significance of this intervention is in 2019 when the Tripoli government agreed to a memorandum of understanding, an MOU, with Ankara on a shared maritime border. Now, if you look at the map, um, you will see that Turkey and Libya do not sit squarely across from one another. Okay. However, according to international law, if your coastline at all faces another country, you may have the right to enter into an agreement on whether or not you share an international maritime border. So the two sides agreed to say that they do share an international border. Now, where this kind of comes and circles back to our original discussion with Greece and Turkey is that it does so at the expense of Greek maritime sovereignty. Where these two countries agreed to draw this border was that it sits more or less directly south of Crete. Now, uh, if 
let's say that border is somehow ratified or made as some sort of de facto border and let's say in some hypothetical world, um, it would usurp a significant amount of Greece's own maritime claims. So here we see, to some extent, um, the benefits of this intervention. Now, was this among the original goals of the intervention? Hard to say. I'm not entirely sure. But it certainly is among the, the fruits of this intervention. That, that's, that's a great point. Uh, one of the things I find really interesting about uh, Erdogan uh, and the Turkish government sort of cozying up to the Muslim Brotherhood uh, is that's the same Muslim Brotherhood that the Egyptian political leadership has constantly tried to suppress uh, going back many, many decades. Uh, and Sisi, right. uh, the current president in Egypt, has uh, done a fine job of trying to eliminate uh, that threat uh, to political uh, uh, stability in in, uh, in Egypt. Uh, if we could, let's, yes. let's shift back to Turkey's role in, as a NATO alliance member and, and, and the extraordinary uh, opposition that President Erdogan is demonstrating uh, to Sweden being allowed in and as an alliance member. Uh, he seems to be okay with uh, with Finland's uh, application. It sounds like uh, 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 Pre- Orban, uh, President Orban in, uh, in Hungary is uh, going to accede to both uh, F- Finland and Sweden entering NATO. Uh, but for Turkey, Sweden's enter- entry is uh, it's a non-starter right now. Can you, can you frame up for our listeners what the issues are behind Turkey's opposition to Sweden coming into NATO? Yeah, I mean, it it came about in a rather strange way because going into um, the um, sort of the the June meeting of last year, in which uh, all NATO members were going to come together and approve um, Sweden and Finland's application, what seemed like was from out of nowhere, um, Erdogan basically says we don't we have problems with this. Um, now this led to a lot of you know, very early speculation. Why? Because there weren't any actual objections voiced beforehand, even though Sweden and Finland had um, signaled their intent to want to apply. Now, what we learn, uh, what we have learned, I should say, since that initial objection, is that perhaps this is very personal for Erdogan, and that Erdogan finds the Swedish government as having been too lax when it comes to two very specific things. One is asylum rights, asylum rights for people seeking um, some sort of refuge from political oppression, which uh, is a regime that has allowed large numbers of Kurds to come and live in Sweden. Um, You know, if you ever visit Sweden, um, you will find in places like Stockholm, rather a significant Kurdish population. Uh, among um, among resident um, uh, res- resident immigrants, um, but more so, you know, Sweden has very liberal um, laws when it comes to freedom of expression, and so you know, in Turkish television coverage, for example, of issues related to Kurdish milita- um, militancy, Kurdish nationalism, the Kurdish Workers' Party, or the PKK. Um, it's often highlighted that uh, among the bases of support for um, Kurdish militants is a place like Sweden. And so even though the Swedish government doesn't back, you know, the, you know, the PKK or the Kurdish Workers Party, which has been at war for with Turkey since the, the early 1980s, what we see is that, you know, 
the Kurdish, the Swedish government is not necessarily able to to stop uh, advocates of the Kurdish Workers Party from holding demonstrations, uh, from you know airing their views publicly, and so um, Turkey issued a, a series of demands, ostensibly saying we you know two things. One is you need to tighten your um, your laws when it comes to parties that voice support for terrorists. And more importantly, there are people in uh, in your country we want. We, you know, we want remanded to uh, to us for prosecution. And in our, arguably, Greece, uh, sorry, Greece, Sweden has gone out of its way to try to appease Ankara on both of these points. Um, but it can only go so far because, you know, ultimately it's not the government's decision to uh, try to reverse these things. You know, Sweden is a country of laws. It's a country of courts. Uh, and the courts, you know, do rule against the government's wishes and, and has done so when it comes to, for example, issues of extradition. So we're, here we're at this impasse. And this is not an impasse that necessarily... Um, bedevils relations between Finland and Turkey. And, you know, even though there are Kurds in Finland and Finland very similarly has, you know, rather liberal uh, laws of, of expression and, and, and political affiliation, uh, this has not necessarily been in, uh, as much an issue. And seemingly, you know, perhaps for strategic reasons, uh, Turkey has decided to let Finland go, um, perhaps you know, for any other, no, not for any other reason, but to further isolate Sweden. So I, I'm not sure where this ends up. Um, uh, I, I really don't know. And I don't think, you know, uh, many in Ankara do either. It is a it is a very interesting situation. Uh, let, let's move on to a couple other questions that come up with uh, with Turkey and NATO and and then we'll step into some U.S.-Turkish relationship uh, discussions. But I think maybe this will help flesh out some of the other things that might be going on here, at least from my perspective. Another contentious issue, Turkey chose to buy the Russian S-400 surface-to-air missile system, uh, despite strong objections from the United States. And the U.S. Congress forced sanctions onto Turkey for this purchase, uh, which included Turkey, uh, booting the Turks out of the F-35 uh, Joint Strike Fighter program. Uh, among other punishments. Uh, wh what was it that drove Turkey to make this deal with Russia uh, to buy the S-400 system uh, and, and the ramifications to Turkey of being thrown out of the F-35 program? That, that's a pretty significant impact. They're still trying to buy F-16s from the United States, which will probably go through. Uh, but there's all these sanctions that the U.S. Uh, put on them. Uh, Turkey has been angling to get into the European Union for a while. Uh, is this uh, objection to Sweden entering uh, the, the NATO alliance, uh, Turkey, uh, is Erdogan planning to extract concessions from both NATO and the European Union uh, to make this deal happen? Is that kind of what's happening here, do you think? Uh, I'll answer your question in reverse. I don't know if necessarily the Sweden issue is connected to the issue of F-16s. Um, they've never made that quid pro quo explicit, it, you know, so... You know, who knows what really goes on in private. But on the other hand, I mean, it's it's not as though, you know, it's the, the two are naturally linked. You know, more importantly, when we look at the issue of the F-16s, I mean, it's not simply the sale of it, but it's the upgrade mm -hmm. of them. Turkey has F-16s, um, but they're older and their shelf life is quickly coming to an end. 
uh, you know, the question more than anything is not whether or not the U.S. You know, US government wishes to send F-16s to uh, Turkey or upgrade them, um, but rather is, um, is the Senate willing to approve it? And that's really the ultimate, you know, sticking point. It's very clear that, you know, prominent men- members of the U.S. Senate most no- notably Senator Menendez of, of New Jersey, has made it very clear that he and his committee are not going to approve it. So uh, I don't necessarily know for 100%, and I'm not sure anybody really does, if Erdogan fully understands that, um, if that somehow he thinks that Biden can simply wave a wand and somehow the F-16s just, you know, the, these upgrade packages just land in, you know, in Turkey's lap. I'm I'm not sure if that's necessarily how, you know, what what he thinks is going to happen. In some cases, it is very possible that, you know, leaders assume that, you know, foreign governments work like their governments. (laughs) Uh, And that may be the case here. So uh, so again, in reverse, I'm not sure if the F-16 issue is necessarily linked to Sweden. I'm not necessarily sure F-16, the F-16 upgrade uh, kits are going to end up in Turkey the S-400 issue, you know, is one that has been parsed, you know, time and time again. And the fact of the matter is no one really knows why Turkey went out of its way to purchase this particular system at this particular time. What the Turkish government argues is that it had wanted to buy the Patriot system from the United States, but that it was the U.S. that refused to sell it to them. Uh, and that the European system, very similarly, uh, was something they were interested in, um, uh, but they uh, they failed to reach a deal. And so the only country that they said that they had left to go to was Russia. Now, um, you know, far more knowledgeable people than myself, people like Aaron Stein at War on the Rocks, has kind of taken this argument apart a little bit. Uh, to basically say, no, this was very clearly a decision of choice, you know, that it was a decision of preference. This is what Erdogan wanted. He wanted S-400s. Why did he want S-400s? Well, we don't know. Um, One of the common assumptions, and again, it's an assumption that we can neither prove nor really disprove, is the fact that an S-400 system is uh, modeled to take on NATO aircraft, which Turkey has. So this leads some, you know, skeptics to assume that the purpose of the S-400 is essentially to target Turkey's own aircraft. In other words, as a kind of coup-proofing mechanism, which uh, would be somewhat reasonable if you consider that um, in the midst of the attempted coup of July 2016 against Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Uh, A significant portion of the Turkish Air Force rose up against him. Uh, F-16s were scrambled and attacked rather brazenly public buildings in Ankara. They bombed the parliament. They bombed uh, headquarters within Ankara. So perhaps that's the purpose for it. The, The truth of the matter is we really don't know. It's a great point. It's a crazy mixed up world we're living in these days. Uh, For our audience listening to National Security This Week on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. 
Our guest today is Professor Ryan Gingeris, and we're discussing the complicated relationship between Greece and Turkey and Turkey's relationship with NATO. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Ryan, we've gotten into this uh, Turkey-U.S. relationship challenge that exists right now. Uh, let's spend the remainder of our show today, uh, which is about another 10 minutes, on the topic of uh, U.S.-Turkish relations. Uh, you penned a fantastic piece for War on the Rocks, which you entitled An Honest Broker No Longer, the United States Between Turkey and Greece. That came out on uh, January 3rd of this year. Uh can you give us a rundown on your perspectives about the role the U.S. plays in both NATO and multilaterally uh, vis-a-vis their complicated Greece and Turkey relationship that you addressed in your in your article? Sure. Thank you so much. I mean, uh, yeah, I, you know, my reading of it is this. For a, a rather long time, going back to the late 1940s, early 1950s, among the assumed planks of the Greek Turkish-U.S. trilateral relationship was the idea that they, at the very least, despite real grievances that exist amongst all three parties, they had a common vision of the thing that threatens them most, which was the Soviet Union. And that that shared apprehension was something that helped, at the very least, provide a basis of negotiation over issues, or at least allowed the three parties to kick the can down the road, right? Muddle on, despite real, very real issues of disagreement. And I should say that, you know, this would also include, you know, U.S. discontent with um, certain uh, behaviors of, of the Greek government, as well as, you know, certain actions of the Turkish government domestically and internationally during the course of the Cold War, right? So, what happens post 1991 is that that premise began to dissolve, right? It didn't dissolve right away, uh, but it did dissolve. And where we do now see it is with this, you know, contemporary situation vis-a-vis the Aegean and that the, um, you know, the, the prime example of this kind of lost confidence kind of lost basis of uh, of mediation or cooperation or negotiation is in the fact that, you know, starting in 2017, the United States began to negotiate a closer relationship in terms of mill-to-mill relations with the state of Greece. And that culminated in 2019 with a mutual defense uh, cooperation agreement. That was signed by both Athens and Washington. It was you know, completed in the last year. Um, that resulted in not only the uh, opening of several Greek facilities to U.S. troops for training purposes, um, but um, increased weapon sales to Greece and, um, you know, the use, um, perhaps most significantly, greater use of a port known as the Port of Alexandropoli, which is, oh gosh, uh, maybe about three, four hours west of Istanbul, about, so a couple of not that far away from uh, from the, the Turkish uh, straits, uh, a port that has been used to supply the Ukrainian war effort. Now, in the Cold War, you know, this kind of agreement could be very easily kind of shewed as an act of um, cooperation and, you know, kind of and capacity building 
between NATO allies. But you know, Turkey has uh, looked upon this agreement as an out-and-out effort to tip the balance or tip the scales against it in military terms. You know, in other words, the United States backs Greece vis-a-vis Turkey and is showing its, you know, uh, you know, its bias by by awarding Greece these various, you know, um, tokens of support in one way, shape, or form. So my overarching point is that you know, even though the United States, you know, is not only within its sovereign right to, you know, negotiate these kinds of agreements and can do so plausibly under the, under the auspices of NATO and sort of shared security, you know, shared collective security, capacity building, et cetera, et cetera. And that it is in, you know, continues to main, maintain rather strong mill-to-mill ties with, you know, the, the Turkish government. Um, those sorts of appeals now fall on deaf ears. Why it falls on deaf ears is not simply... You know, as a result of the state of affairs between Turkey and Greece, it's very much in terms of a broader cultural, political, and social turn in Turkey that one can, you know, arguably trace back as early as to the Cold War, um, but really kind of goes back, I would say, since the early days of the the ter- war on terror. Let me tell you something, John. You know, when I first visited Turkey, and this is purely anecdotal, audience can take it as a with a grain of salt, what have you. When I first went to Turkey, I did not speak a lick of Turkish. I did speak German, which did kind of help in various parts of the country because lots of people in the countryside did speak Tur- uh, German because they had gone to live there or work there at various points in their time. But throughout the country, every time I spoke with somebody, whether they spoke a language I could speak or not, um, the thing that they would often say is, you know, you know, Turkey, U.S., and they would put their fingers together, putting their fingers together, saying like, you know, we're we're one, you know, we're you know, we're really close. That really began to change post 2003, right, really began to change. And what really changed it was, you know, the war in Iraq. Yeah. Um, the U.S. relate, you know, the, the U.S. response to the insurgency, Abu Ghraib, revelations regarding Guantanamo. You know, that really changed the ways in which large numbers of Turks who had otherwise thought rather kindly about the United States, uh, you know, really changed their minds. And frankly, Erdogan has exploited this, right? Erdogan has fed this, you know, really, I think, quite natural and in many ways really quite understandable aversion to the U.S. and U.S. policy and built it up into something bigger in which... The United States is not simply a, a perhaps a you know a a faulty actor, but is a bad actor. And not only is it perhaps a bad actor, it's a it's a a a name. It is an enemy of Turkey in all but name. Now, again, you know there were sort of signs of this in Turkey, you know, even before two thousand and three, but you know since two thousand and three, it's just a lot lot worse. And what I would say is that when we look at the trilateral relationship now, or even the bilateral relationship between Turkey and the United States, it's really hard to think about firm ground that the two can stand on at the same time that will allow them to work constructively. Uh, And among, you know, the pieces of evidence of this is the war in Ukraine, where you have such unanimity within the, you know, the NATO alliance. Yeah. Hungary is a kind of a big standout here, but you, you Hungary in a lot of ways is, 
you know, is a state that's rather similar to Turkey, you know, in terms of sort of its internal dynamics. But, you know, the fact is Turkey is genuinely an outlier in that Turkey has gone in a lot of ways out of its way to aid Russia amid this, you know, amid this crisis. So I, I, I'm, I, this has led me to be rather pessimistic regarding the future of Turkish-U.S. relations. And, and, and I think does give me a fair amount of angst when I look at the future in terms of kind of Turkey's broader role within the region. So, Ryan, there are like 150 more questions I want to ask you today, but unfortunately, we're uh, we're we're coming up on the end of our show time. Uh, I, I do have uh, our station owner here sitting across from me. Is it okay if we go with a couple minutes extra? Uh, okay, so I got the thumbs up on that, Ryan. Quick, quick question: We can't uh, ignore this. Uh, the, the earthquake that hit Turkey, roughly 50,000 uh, people died, uh, significant failures in the construction industry on the quality of the construction. Uh, some are blaming, some in Turkey are blaming Erdogan for having waived uh, some of those, uh, the quality construction standards. Uh, lots of other things going on. The, the, the elections are coming up here where Erdogan stands for re-election. Uh, where do you see this uh, falling out in the spring elections? Uh, you know, um <laughs> I'm bad at the track. I'm even worse <laughs> when it comes to handicapping uh, Turkish domestic politics. Um, you know, the earthquake really quite clearly hurt Erdogan, right? At least it hurt, may not have hurt him personally, um, but it hurt his brand. It hurt his party. And there is um, a really deep reservoir of uh, of bitterness as a result of this uh, uh, of this disaster. Now, the thing is, and this is where we really don't know uh, and have difficulty handicapping the future. It's not clear whether or not the Turkish voter is willing to vote for the opposition as much as perhaps they are willing to vote against Erdogan. Mm hmm. So, you know, he, what I mean by that is the opposition is made up of a coalition, a coalition that is really, um, in a lot of ways, a, a rather weird mix of political personalities and political inclinations. And some of these political inclinations are really kind of mutually contradictory. Among the main factors that, you know, remains unknown is whether or not um, voters will vote for the opposition because it genuinely likes the opposition or, you know, genuinely hates Erdogan enough to be able to kind of put up with the fact that they're voting for what's ultimately a really weird stew of people. Um, so, you know, in, you know, among the things that I think people should pay attention to is the what what I think is really shaping up to be the king making role of um, of Kurds. Now Kurds comprise somewhere around 10, 15, 20 percent of the population, depending on who you ask. And as a collective body, it's rather diverse. But what we've seen is that large numbers of Kurds have tended to vote against uh, Erdogan and parties associated with him. But the fact of the matter is the coalition that has formed in opposition to Erdogan possesses personalities, one particularly very strong personality, a woman by the name of Mural Akshaner, 
uh, who has a really strong pedigree of being against Kurds, right? As, as somebody who has actually participated in some of the worst um, events in history that have targeted Kurds. Now, you know, the not only that, it's not clear whether or not voters, uh, Turkish voters, would vote for a party that, let's say, warmly accepts the support of Kurds. So it's almost a double-edged sword for the opposition, right? Mm -hmm. If you embrace the king-making role of Kurds, because if you kind of look at the simple math, the 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 these you know this opposition party in terms of its overarching sort of support in the in the country um, possesses in and around uh, a plurality, but doesn't have a majority of the population. If you add Kurds or the the support of Kurdish parties to this opposition, they win. They win in a walk. But the fact is, this is hypothetical. We don't know what voters will do if, for example, this opposition you know, coalition reaches out to Kurds. Maybe part of that, that those voters say, you know what, I hate Erdogan, but you know what, I hate Kurds more. And so, you know, either I'm not going to vote or I'll vote for Erdogan. Or conversely, you know, the, you know, the opposition, you know, sort of turns a cold shoulder. So what lukewarm on Kurdish support, what do Kurds do? Do Kurds vote for the opposition still? Or do they sit at home? We don't really know. So, you know, I, and the last thing I'll mention is that we don't know really what Erdogan has in mind in, you know, his playbook. You know, we have an election coming up in May. He could have postponed the election. It would have been illegal, but he could have postponed it. (laughs) Um, now what his game plan is, is not still a hundred percent clear. Um, he could try to run against it, the, the opposition in some sort of way as to paint them as, uh, either, um, being, um, enabled to, unable to govern or unresponsible or, uh, incompetent. They could try to paint them as being terrorists because they've reached out to Kurds. I mean, this is a kind of likely game plan. Perhaps he tries to foment a crisis, a crisis in which, you know, let's say a foreign crisis of some kind in which this pumps up Erdogan's standing as a world leader. It's really, uh, you know, those are all things that he could do. There could be other things as well. It's really hard to say. Long story short is, man, we don't really, um, you know, we're we're in for some rough waters going into May as well as beyond, because even if Erdogan is defeated, it's not necessarily over with him. You know, much of the bureaucracy, much of the state, much of society has been transformed by him. He has a really large base of support inside and outside of government. And if he is removed as president, that government has to deal with those who attain their position because of him and who are genuinely loyal to him. And I don't know how that government functions. I just don't. That's some great insight. Uh, unfortunately, we have definitely hit the end of our showtime today. Uh, Professor Ryan Gingeris from the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your knowledge of Turkey with us. Thank you so much, John. It was a real, real pleasure. That closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week 
a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series. Hi, I'm Terry Knight. Join me weekday mornings at 623 for Garden Bite. 